Okay, well, uh, we're happy to be here and happy for, again, the opportunity to study as we uh, look at our theme. It is from the book of Acts, chapter 13, and verse 22, where God says, uh, And when he had removed him, that is, removed King Saul from being king, he raised up David to be their king, to whom also he bare witness and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who shall do uh, all my will. And, of course, the title of, the, of our series of studies is A Heart for God. David had a heart for God. And uh, Monday night we talked about David and Goliath and what a tremendous story. Uh, just, uh, I don't know, every time you read it, it it's just so thrilling just to uh, look at it again and again. Last night we talked about David and King Saul and uh, kind of the, <clears throat> the topsy-turvy relationship there, and ultimately, of course, Saul was killed in, in battle. And tonight, we're talking about a very dark side of David, David and Bathsheba. He has uh, set great examples, and he's going to set a good example of, of rectification, of making things right after this dark event associated with Bathsheba, but it was, of course, something very displeasing to the Lord. So that'll be our study as we look in particular at Second uh, Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and then we're going to look at a couple of psalms and have some other verses kind of mixed in as we go along here. But we're going to begin here in Second Samuel chapter 11 as we talk about David and Bathsheba. All right, first off, we're going to look at the first four verses, or oh, excuse me, before we get to that, I did want to mention one, one little interesting fact. The story of David and Bathsheba, God just lays it all out there. And to me, it is evidence of inspiration. You know, sometimes you look at biographies of various characters in history, and what you have in biographies is like, well, they like to emphasize and talk about all the good things and maybe sometimes don't, don't even mention something bad maybe a person has done, or, or just very briefly, maybe, maybe it consumed a, a part of their life and was kind of a major event while it was happening, but then in the biography they sort of have kind of a slanted view uh, and sort of just present the good side. And God's not like that. He just lays it out just the way it is, the good and the bad. And to me, that, that is evidence of inspiration because God, of course, is a God of truth. And he's not going to try to hide something because it actually happened, the story of David and Bathsheba. I mean, it's a couple of chapters here, and then the consequences last on through the, uh, the rest of the life of David. But he was a man after God's own heart, and there are a lot of great things. But God talks about this. All right, in verses 1 through 4 here, uh, or 1 through 5, I entitle it, An Idle Mind is the Devil's Workshop. And certainly that would be a great illustration of that uh, kind of a proverbial saying, An Idle Mind is the Devil's Workshop. And so let's just begin here by looking at these uh, first five verses. Verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. Someone want to read that for us? There. Cody, you want to read that for us? Alright, so we read there in verse 1 that they're in these battles and it was a time of uh, activity and and, of course, David, he's king, he's sort of the leader. What's going on there? And it seems like maybe he should have been, you know, checking on maybe what was going on, but he has some idle time on his hand. And so we read there in verse 2, it's late afternoon, and, and he's just walking on the rooftop, 
and he sees this woman taking a bath. Now, some have said, well, does she know that she was being seen? I have, I have no idea. I don't know if she was being enticing. One thing I do know is that when David sent for her and she came, what took place? She was, she was consensual to what was going on. I mean, you can't say that, you know, David just sort of took advantage of her. You know, it's like the saying, two, it takes two tangos. So she was kind of a willing partner in this uh, affair that went on, this adulterous uh, affair that went on. But he sees this woman and, uh, well, his mind gets to wandering and the wheels get to turning and it's described that she's a very beautiful woman. And what he should have done was kind of like the Barney Fife method. That is, you know, nipped it in the bud. It's like, whoa, whoa, this, this is not good. And just fled from that and nipped it while it was just in bud. But the problem is that, well, he sees things that was inappropriate for him to see. Maybe it was totally by accident. We'll just be fair and, and try to say, yeah, it was just an accident. Maybe she was unaware that people could see her. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. We'll, we'll just assume the best. That's what love does. You assume the best. But David saw, and then David's mind began to wonder. Over in the book of James chapter 1, James describes how we sort of get into sin. Sometimes it's just a notion. Sometimes you have that uh, this notion is presented. And then and instead of taking care of it while it was just, just wrestling in the mind, no, you just keep going a little further, a little further, a little further. All right, here in James chapter 1, number 14 and 15, James chapter 1 uh Uh, Well, let's just read verses 13, 14, and 15. Just uh, read the whole section there. James chapter 1, 13, 14, 15. Someone want to read that for us there? Karen, you want to read that for us? All right. So here you have the desire. That would have been better. Well, even before that, when he just saw this beautiful woman, he should have just said, whoa, you know, know, skedaddled along the way and got, uh, got free from the situation. But... He begins to think, and so he kind of inquires, well, who is this lady? And then when he finds out who it is, and, and maybe he understands that, you know, he's, her husband's in battle, and he's away, well, what a great opportunity, he thinks. And so he sends for her, and she comes. Now, she could have said what when she came? She could have said no, of course, she could have said no, and no, I'm a married woman, this is not right. I mean, this is the way to handle it. It's like a fellow one time. He uh, he was working. Uh, he worked at a public store, and this girl that she just kind of took a liking to him and said, "Hey, would you like to go out to lunch?" Now, there's two possibilities to answer to this woman. Would have been what appropriate responses. Yeah, he could have said, no, uh, well, no, ma'am, I'm, I'm like a married man, and that really wouldn't be appropriate for me to be going out to lunch with you, or what would be another appropriate response? Exactly, yeah, me and the missus, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll be happy uh, to have lunch with you and get to know you, and, you know, always thinking that, you know, maybe here's some person that maybe you could share the gospel with, and so that would have been fine. E- either one would have been an appropriate response. But he went out to lunch there, Sandy. 
Well, she may, well, she could have went to see what he wanted, but when he was saying, hey, let's, you know, go to the bedroom and have a rendezvous or whatever, uh, well, because we have the principle in the book of Acts chapter 5 and verse uh, 29, we ought to obey God rather, rather than men, yeah. So ultimately, yeah, you could say, well, no, I'm a married woman, and adultery is wrong. And so, yeah, but to just to go, yeah, sure. I mean, there wouldn't have been a problem. Maybe she had no idea why he was calling for her. Uh, you know, I mean, if the president calls you up, well, generally, sure, okay, yeah. You may not know exactly what it's for. Probably he wouldn't have told the messenger, just say, well, who is this? Oh, could you have her come up? And uh, anyway, so uh, that, would, that would be my viewpoint. <clears throat> but anyway, James describes how it all starts. It's just this, the, the, the desire. And it started with the look. And, you know, instead of just saying, dismissing that, no, nah, he, he went on kind of reveling this in his heart and, and pondering about it and inquiring. You see, he's sort of taking it a step and, and another step. He, he finds out who it is and, and then, hey, could you have her come up here? And then he had to do some talking and the next thing you know, they're in bed sleeping together. Over in the book of Job, chapter 31, we'll... Come back to this verse again, or this chapter again, but I want to look at that verse 1 in Job 31, verse 1. Job 31, verse 1. Uh, someone want to read that for us? Job 31, 1. All right, so Job made a covenant with his eyes. He was a married man, and he made a covenant with his eyes, and the covenant was, I'm going to be looking around. I mean, that's just the way it is. You know, when you, you get married, you say... Generally, in the vows, forsaking what? Yeah, forsaking all others. You know, now when you're single, you might be scanning the horizon, checking out who you might be, you know, that you might be interested to date or whatever, and it goes both ways. But, you know, men and women can kind of be checking around. But once you get married, it's like, hey, you know, forsaking all others. Or, you know, you're not at liberty to be looking around and thinking about. And here you have, and, and another thing, David had, he had tons of wives. I mean, he could have, uh, if he had these great desires, he could have went and found one of his wives and, and, and satisfied her. But no, he sees Bathsheba, and it just progressed step by step by step. And next thing you know, he's in adultery. Yeah, he's a good-looking guy, too. I mean, that's the Scriptures talk about that. So here... Physically, and you know that's a danger of of being good looking is that it comes with you know responsibilities. Seriously, I mean if if you if you are good looking, you you have extra responsibilities. Yeah, <laughs> well, my mother in law said you can count on that. <laughs> but sure enough, it is. You do have responsibility, bigger responsibilities. You know, it's it's like a blessing. It's like a double-edged sword. It's like a blessing and a curse. You know, it's a blessing because you're very attractive, but it's also a curse because it can lead. And, and I've seen too many people get, uh, especially a lot of young people, get in trouble that I have encountered through my years that are young and very attractive. And next thing you know, they have uh, conceived a child. Uh, and it's uh, it's well, it's it's wrought with danger. Well, anyway, they have the rendezvous, and you know, they sort of part, and then she sends word back, hey, uh, like, I'm, I'm pregnant. Now, he's going to have to deal with that. And 
We'll look at that here momentarily, but I want to look at this, that adultery. Go back to that Job 31. Because on down there, Job talked about, you know, I made a covenant with Isaac. You know, I'm going to be looking, looking upon a maid, thinking about a maid and all this. You know, I'm, I'm married, you know, forsaking all others. And what he's doing here, because his friends were saying, they, they had the philosophy that piety pays and perversity punishes. And, and Job is in the midst of suffering, so he must be perverse in some way. He must have done some great horrendous sin. And he's just saying... You know, he's just saying, no, I haven't. And he talks about the matter of infidelity. And notice there, number 10 through 12. 10 through 12. Someone want to read that for us? 10 through 12. All right. In, in verse 11, the King James, and I think the English Standard, both uses the phrase, for it is a heinous crime. You talk about a heinous crime. Well, what, what, what comes to your mind you think about a heinous crime? Yeah, it's, it's just bad. It really stinks. It's odious. Yeah, it's extreme. And that's the way Job describes infidelity. He calls it a heinous crime. This is really bad. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that here momentarily in Proverbs 6. But he calls it a heinous crime. And he says, for it is a fire that consumeth to destruction. And that's just apt. Just very accurate description of infidelity is like a fire. And uh, it creates tons of problems as uh, you think about it. This heinous crime. And God is not trying to smooth over this heinous crime like somehow, you know, just a little indiscretion here. No, it was a heinous crime. And God just comes out and says, this is the way it is. Uh, Even though he's... Thinks of David as a man after his own heart. He made a big mistake, big problems here. And the thing about uh, infidelity is that, yeah, we can be forgiven. Absolutely, the Bible teaches forgiveness. It also talks about, in Proverbs chapter 6, that we, as Kathy was talking about, it's like, yeah, you can be forgiven, but it just doesn't seem to be washed away. And... We're going to see in the language here in Proverbs 6, that's exactly right. All right, number 27, 28. This is how it's described when it talks about contextually. Actually, chapters 5, 6, and 7 all talk about the the adulterous woman or the strange woman, uh, the immoral woman, and warning uh, uh, his son not to to follow on that. But notice there, 27, 28. 27, 28. Someone want to read that for us? All right, first off, he talks about taking coals of fire. I don't need fire now because it's plenty warm. But in the wintertime, maybe you got a fireplace. I got a fire, I got a wood stove. And you get those red hot coals and you just drop one down your shirt. What's going to happen? You're going to get burned. It's not, it's like no way to even get in there and yank it out quick enough without you getting burned. That's just the way it's going to happen. That's what he's saying about immorality. You're going to get burned by it. And then he says, can one walk upon, uh, go up on hot coals and his feet not be burned? I mean, you're just casually walking along, you step on those coals, well, you're going to burn your feet also. And then drop on down in the text here. And notice there, number 32 and 33. Someone want to read that for us, 32 and 33. All right, so the one that commits adultery, immorality, lacks understanding, he's going to destroy his own soul. I mean, in the heat of passion, you're just thinking about satisfaction. You're thinking about, uh, uh, you know, all this so-called love, which is really lust and burning desire and satisfaction and all that. 
but really you're, you're going to destroy your soul. And then that verse 33, it says, A wound and a dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. And when you think about what that text says, it's like, well, yeah, you can be forgiven, but it just, the scar remains. I mean, you think about David every time, I mean, just think about it in your own life. You talk about David and invariably what topic's going to come up? David and Bathsheba. It's just, he's kind of like exhibit A of what, what the wise man was saying there in Proverbs chapter 6, a wound and dishonor. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, it's like you drive a nail in, in you know, in, say like the doorway there. You drive a big old nail in that. Well, you can yank that nail out, but what's going to be left? Big old hole. It's going to be marred. I mean, you can get putty and fill it in, but it's, it's going to be a mark. It's not exactly the way it was, you know, the clear, smooth wood that it is and the grain. I mean, you, it's, it's a mar that just will stay there. And that's what the wise man's saying. And, of course, Proverbs chapters 5, 6, and 7 just over and over in various angles and ways warns against immorality and, and uh, uh, falling into the trap of immorality and wrongdoing, adultery or fornication or whatever. Uh, you know, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that the, you know, fornication is kind of a, kind of a unique transgression because it's a sin against the own, one's own body that's described there in chapter 6. And so here David, he, he falls into this, uh, in this terrible, terrible transgression of adultery. But then, and this is kind of the way it happens a lot with sin and transgression, is like, okay, we do one thing wrong, and then we do other things wrong. It's kind of like a snowball. You know, you're on a hill and you start the snowball rolling down, what's going to happen if it keeps rolling? It's going to get bigger. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's kind of the way sin is. Once it gets, gets a foothold, it just it seems to grow. And that's the way Satan works. Ah, just, ah, one time won't hurt. Then once you do it, ah, well, you've made a mess of yourself. Why, why even try? And next thing you know, you, you've compromised your conscience and you've got all this guilt and you just permeate deeper and deeper. And that's what happens with David in this story. So notice... <clears throat> What happens? All right, beginning in verse 6, number 678. 678. Someone want to read that for us? 678. All right, so he sends word. Hey, hey, send uh, Uriah the Hittite back. He comes down. Well, how's things going? You know, he's kind of playing it cool. How's things going? How's the war going? How's the campaign? Yeah, yeah. And he's giving all this report. And, you know, you probably wouldn't think much about it. Ah, just go wash up and, you know, go on home. And he thinks, well, he'll just wash up, go on home, and he'll be with his wife, and she's had this baby, and unless you calculate real closely, you just assume, well, it would be his kid. That would sort of take care of it. What problem? Verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and went not down to his house. Like, Whoa, well, that, that didn't work. So I was like, all right. Move to plan B. Number 10 and 11. 10 and 11. Uh, <clears throat> Alright, so this guy has honor. He has some integrity. I mean, he has, you know, empathy. I mean, here's Joab and all these soldiers and they're out and they're not home, you know, you know, uh, eating, drinking and, and uh, the conjugal visit and all that stuff. No, no way I'm going to do that. Alright, so David tries another idea. Number 12 and 13. Someone read that. Number 12, 13. 
Alright, so I say, hey, well, come on over. And so he eats, and he's like, give him a little bit extra booze and a little bit more, a little bit more. Gets him all drunk, thinking, well, maybe he'll go down to the house, and he'll be with his wife. And, and again, you know, oh, wow, you know, this is great. Hey, we're, we're, we're expecting a baby. It didn't work either. So then David has another plan. He gets deeper, deeper and deeper, digging himself deeper and deeper into sin and transgression. Verse 14, it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to the hand, sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set you, Uriah, in the forefront of the hottest battle and retired or go back from him that he may be smitten and die. And so here Uriah, he takes his, what would be a death warrant, not knowing what it is, probably rolled up, sealed, you know, that's the way they would do things. And he's carrying his death warrant. He's just being a good soldier, being a good guy. And off he goes. And he goes into battle with the Ammonites. And they put him up there. And they all pull back. And bam, he gets shot with an arrow and dies. And so Joab, sort of privy to what's happening, he says, okay, yeah, go go tell king what's happened, you know. And if he gets upset because, you know, it didn't go too well, you know, tell him, well, now Uriah died. And then notice how David just sort of smoothed this over on down there, number 24 and 25. 24 and 25. All right, so David's response says, well, you know, that's how battles go. I mean, sometimes people die. And, you know, and this guy, he's just wrong. He, he, he is deceptive. He's committed adultery. He's committed deception and lies. And he gets this fellow killed, which, as we'll see in the next chapter, that he killed, he killed Uriah by the Ammonites. So David was guilty of that transgression also. I mean, it's just like compounding problem after problem after problem, trying to cover up sin with sin. One of the Proverbs talks about when you try to cover sin, you'll not prosper. Well, he's not going to prosper. I mean, it's bad. And we're going to get to chapter 12 here when he's confronted by Nathan. But there's something, I think, important to see here. And we'll look over there in Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Because there's something here interesting that maybe we just sort of, you know, when we're reading 2 Samuel chapter 11 and then we move right into chapter 12, we we might miss something here. And I think uh, this is important to see. In Psalm 32, notice there number 3 and 4. Psalm 32, 3 and 4. Someone want to read that for us? Alright. Now what David talks about there, that he kept silent for a while. It's actually for several months. What we see, at least nine months. Because that's generally the length of a pregnancy, is it not? Yeah, nine months, pregnancy. So he conceives... And Uriah's dead, and he just takes Bathsheba, and it's his, you know, his wife, and so it just appears like, hey, you know, boy, they, they, they're having a, they're having a child. These newlyweds are having a child, and boy, isn't that, isn't that great? And that would be the appearance to men. It would be appearance to men. But he is covering the sin, and for at least nine months, and I take it when I read there in Second Samuel chapter twelve, it uses the word child, it doesn't use the word babe. And I, I'm thinking maybe, maybe this little baby lived for several months, maybe a year, maybe a couple of years. I don't know. 
Because when Nathan comes and finally confronts him about the sin, and he acknowledges wrongdoing, and one of the consequences, as we'll see, is that the child's going to die, is that that would be nine months plus ever how old the, the little child is. It could be a few months old. Could be a year old. I, I don't know, but I know at least nine months. Nine months. He has he is concealing his sin. And what does he describe in Psalm thirty two? When I kept silent, what was his disposition in his heart? What 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 does he describe there? Yeah, he's sick at his stomach. The language is, when I kept silent, my bones waxed all through my roaring all the day long. What was roaring? A guilty conscience. That's what roared day and night. He describes there in verse 4, For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. And the idea is, like, you know, you get a long dry spell in summer, and it's like, whoa, you're like parched, and everything just... You know, just dries up. And that's why he felt spiritually. Well, no doubt. <clears throat> you've committed adultery. You've lied. you got a man drunk. you committed murder. And you're keeping quiet all about this. And you're giving the pretense as if, well, you know, hey, wonderful, wonderful, lobby, you know, Bathsheba and I, we're newlyweds, and lo and behold, we're going to have a kid. I mean, that, that was the presentation. And I think it's important to understand that, that sometimes we just read chapter 11 and move into chapter 12 and just like, well, you know, a, a few days go by. And, no, there's, there's a period of time in there that he's not, he's not fessing up. You know, he's not coming clean with uh, his transgression and with his wrongdoing. And that's important to see what uh, are the events that transpire here. And so that brings us then to chapter 12, because in chapter 12... He's ultimately confronted. And that's a, another important lesson is that, well, you know, I guess Joab might have heard about the affair, maybe. Word kind of gets around, but there were some underhanded things going on. I mean, Joab knew about the, the deal with Uriah. And maybe the servants that sent him down to the king, maybe they had some suspicions. Pick on former President Clinton, but you know he 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 was having that rendezvous with Monica Lewinsky, and he just just so uh, emphatic said, you know, I, I never touched that woman, no, I never, never never had sex with that woman, and, and then it comes out, yeah, yeah, he did. I mean, you know, people, you know, they probably weren't there in the room when they were doing their rendezvous, but. There were people well aware of that. And I suspect maybe there were a few that sort of, and they probably kind of kept quiet about that. Uh, maybe they, well, because he's a powerful fella and you don't want to get somebody upset with their indiscretions. But anyway, somebody's going to come on the scene that's not afraid of him. And that brings us to chapter 12. All right, let's notice there, verse, uh, verses uh, 1 through one through six. Uh, someone, read, uh, Randy, you want to read that for us? One through six, chapter twelve here. All right. So Nathan the prophet tells this little story, and it's like, yeah, David. You know, I mean, just remember now, several months, at least nine months, maybe could be a couple of years has gone by since this transgression. You know, and he's thinking, well, it's all pretty secret, it's all pretty hush hush, and 
And here, you know, Nathan, you know, he's the man of God and he's telling the story. And, and David's just sort of intending the story. And, yeah, yeah, that's, that's horrible. And it's a perfect parallel. A absolutely perfect parallel. And David said, ah, this, this low down, dirty dog scandal, he, he don't even deserve to live. He needs to restore fourfold. And, and he's all fired up and he's angry about the matter. And verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. I'm talking about you. And I mean, it's like, boom. You know, his sin is all laid out. Now, Probably lots of lessons here, but one lesson is, how much can we hide from the Lord? Can't hide nothing from the Lord. That, that's a thing. That's, that's, that, well, that's kind of the scary and sobering thing to always think about. We can't hide anything from God. Well, why, 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 why are we trying to kill ourselves to think that somehow, you know, we can hide what we do from God and God's not going to know about it and we can just, God brings it out through the prophet. And it was, wow. I mean, it just like hit him right between, you know, between the eyes. Now, what's interesting about restore fourfold? You know, it's almost kind of like, that's almost prophetic. Because ultimately, David loses four of his children. As a consequence, who was the first one? The little baby with Bathsheba. And then there was... uh Amnon. And then there was Absalom. And then Adonijah. He loses four of his sons, all because of consequences of his transgressions. I mean, once he had committed adultery, he could have said, man, what was I thinking? What am I doing? He could have made it right then and and stopped right there and and acknowledged it and and made the thing right and confessed it before the Lord and and went to Uriah and begged for forgiveness, etc. But, no, he's trying to cover it up. And so Nathan says, You are the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and, and your master's wives into your bosom. And I give you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if it had been too little, I would moreover have given unto such thing, uh, unto thee such and such things. I mean, whatever you want, hey, I was, I was going to give it to you. God's saying, I, I did all these things for you. And how did you do? How did you, how did you handle this? Verse nine. Wherefore have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in a sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall not depart from you, uh, from, uh, from your house, because thou hast despised, thou hast despised me. Now, that's interesting. Verse 9, you despise my commandment. Verse 10, you have despised me. You see... There's a, there's a connection between God and His Word. I mean, you know, you, you, sometimes you have people who say, oh yeah, I really like Jesus, but then they come across something Jesus teaches. Well, no, I don't like that. It can't be. I mean, if you're going to accept Jesus, you're going to have to accept what He says. It, it goes hand in hand. I mean, you can't say, well, you know, I really like Jesus, but I don't really like what He teaches on, and just say whatever teaching that just you, you don't happen to agree with. That it doesn't work. It's impossible. If we love Jesus, we're going to love what He says because He's King and He knows what's best and He's God and and He's uh, you know He He always commands us for our good. 
And so he had despised the commandment because he had despised God. I mean, God's the one that put the restrictions, and the Ten Commandments said what? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not cover, cover thy neighbor's wife. I mean, he inquired who was this. I mean, it could have been some, uh, you know, some single girl. He said, hey, you know, I think I'll marry this girl. Well, he could have done that. Polygamy was uh, tolerated in the Old Testament. But when he found out that, hey, this is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, well, that should have stopped it right there also. But he despised the commandment of the Lord. He didn't like the restrictions that the word of the Lord brought upon him. And so uh, the Lord says in verse 11, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil unto thee out of thine own house. And I will take your wives before, before your eyes and give them unto, the, unto your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for, for thou did this in secret. But I will do this before all Israel and before the sun. And David's reaction, verse 13, he says, I have sinned. You know, it's interesting as you study the Scriptures, you, you find very few genuine confessions, transgressions. And it was a sincere, genuine confession. I have sinned. It's like the prodigal son. I have sinned. I have sinned against heaven and before you. And no more worthy to be called your son. That, that was a genuine confession. Sometimes you have confessions that people make like Saul there in, in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15. You know, he confesses, but it was just to save face. It wasn't to try to make things right. Sometimes you have like uh, uh, Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Yeah, yeah, I've done wrong, I've done wrong. Well, that's just because there's consequences. He's not really sorry that he did wrong. He just He's just sorry for all these consequences and wants God to take it away. And sometimes you have people like uh, uh, like Judas Iscariot. Yeah, well, I done wrong, but that was just out of despair. It wasn't a genuine confession of, of sin and transgression. But this was one of those genuine confessions. Now let's go back to Psalm 32, because this is one of the Psalms and the one that Seth talked about. Psalm 51. We'll briefly touch on that right at the end. Oh, look at Psalm 32. Because David talks about what forgiveness is all about. That's where the tender heart comes in. Yeah, for, for months, maybe a couple years or more. You know, he's kept silence. He, he's had this guilty conscience. He hasn't come clean with his transgression. He sort of hid it and he's done it in secret and he tried to cover it up and it looks like, you know, it's all, you know, I washed it over. It's all smoothed over until Nathan confronts him. Then he does come clean. Notice in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. 1 and 2. Someone want to read that for us? 1 and 2. All right, blessed. The word blessed used in the Scriptures. What does the word blessed mean? Pardon? It's happy. It's it's an inward happiness. It's an an inward happiness deep in the soul. our, Our word happy is not exactly parallel because happy... A lot of times our happiness is related relate to what's happening. You know, everything's going good, we feel good, you know, pleasant temperatures, maybe we're on vacation, so we're happy because of the surrounding things makes us happy because of what's happening. But this, this blessedness, it can be in great turmoil, but yet this happiness is, is on the inside. It's like Paul and Silas when they were beaten and, and uh, mistreated and abused, and, and yet in the Philippian jail they did what? 
If they're saying any prayer, well, they have this inward blessing and happiness. And that, that's what David is describing when he uses the word, in the Bible he uses the word blessed. It's just this inward, deep down in the soul, deep down in the heart, uh, happiness. Blessed is, the, uh, is, uh, is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord doesn't impute or, or credit uh, him with iniquity. When, when one is genuinely forgiven, if you use the imagery of Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden. What, was he talking about working a lot of hard physical work? No, you're not talking about you know digging ditches. You're not talking about picking up rocks or putting up hay. Probably the hottest job I ever had in my life when I was a kid. We worked on the farm putting up square bale hay. You're heavy, you're hot, and your arms are scratching, and you get all that stuff all over you, and that's like that's the hottest, hardest job I ever did in my life. I mean, it's, it's tough. But you, you know what? The point is, he's not talking about finding relief when he says, come unto me, all you that labor, all you people putting up hay, I'm going to give you rest. No. What he's talking about is laboring under the burden of sin. He's talking about carrying the burden of sin. You know, it's, it's not like, well, you know, i got this guilty conscience, and oh man, it's really bothering me. Oh, I think I'll set that over on the bedstand so I can just go to bed and just sleep really well. Can you do that? No, you can't, you can't, like, detach your conscience. You can't say, well, you know, I want to go on vacation. This thing's really bothering me. My conscience is, is just, well, it's just, it's just tearing me up. It's just roaring. And, well, we'll, we'll just leave that conscience at home and we'll go on vacation and just have a nice time. It doesn't work that way. It, it, it stays with us. And when you find this genuine forgiveness... That God forgives when you finally just come clean before God and just make it right. Just come in humility, as we're going to look at uh, here at the end from Psalm 51, that broken and contrite heart, and just bring it to the Lord. Not trying to cover it up anymore, just admit to it. No need to cover up anymore. Just admit it. Make it right with God. And you can find that genuine, true blessedness that is described because God grants he doesn't always forgive consequences. Now, there's a difference there. You can be forgiven of sin, but maybe not necessarily the consequences that comes with transgression. Yeah, you might go out and do drugs and you, know, you damage your brain. Yeah, can you be forgiven? Absolutely, of course you can be forgiven of doing drugs and, and mind-altering substances, but the consequences may rest with you for the rest of your life as you suffer brain damage and lose brain cells and forget things that because of, uh, of alcohol or drug abuse. <clears throat> but David talks about this, this wonderful forgiveness. And then he talks about there in that verse 3 or 4 that we read earlier, that, you know, he kept silence for a period of time and God's hand was heavy upon him, a heavy conscience. You know, the conscience stays with you. It continues to bother. And, and of course, the danger about just sort of you know, running roughshod over your conscience is what's possible about the conscience. It can be seared. It can be so hardened that, well, then we don't feel bad anymore about it. That's the danger of ignoring the conscience because it's a part of the faculty. And the conscience does what? What's the purpose of conscience? Pardon? Yeah, to convict. Or to, it's kind of like, the best way uh, that I, I like to illustrate, it's like the umpire in baseball. And he's standing behind whole plate, 
and you got the catcher there, and you got the man at the batter's box, and the pitcher throws, and what does the umpire call? Ball or strike? Ball or strike? And that's what the conscience does. Oh, you did good. You feel good about yourself. Oh, you did bad. Now, your conscience can be set, you know, to the wrong standard, and, I mean, Paul would be an example of that, you know, living in all good conscience and persecuting Christians, thinking that, hey, uh, that's what I need to do, and he was doing it, so he felt good about it, but he was, you know, consciously, conscientiously wrong about it, sincerely wrong. But conscience is, is that faculty that says, hey, you're doing good, or hey, you're doing bad. And it's, it's there for our good. To, to impede us from doing things wrong when the conscience says, oh, now wait a minute, you decide to go and do this, you know that's going to be bad. You, you know that's, you're going to feel really horrible after it's, oh, And so that's the faculty of conscience. It's an important part and to try to keep the conscience tender. And, and David, he comes clean. I mean, it's just brought out there in the open. And he's going to suffer some horrendous, horrendous consequences. He would be forgiven. And, and that's what he describes here in Psalm 32. And in the Psalm 51, he describes this wonderful forgiveness. But we have to acknowledge our wrongdoing. Notice there number 5 and 6, Psalm 32, 5 and 6. I want to read, it, read that for us. Alright, so David talks about acknowledging. Well, yeah, after a period of time. But he recognized that's not the way. It's just, just if you mess up, don't, don't keep trying to hide it. You're not hiding it from God. You might you might hide it from might hide it from the brethren, might hide it from your parents, might hide it from your grandparents, might hide it from your spouse. But just make it right. That's that's the way. It's just it's just come clean. And that's the thing about genuine repentance. You're you're not trying to save face, you're not trying to save reputation, you're not trying to save anything. What you're trying to do is save your soul. And so you bring it. You just bring it before the Lord to make it right. That's what godly sorrow does. You have the sorrow of the wood, uh, sorrow of the world, Second Corinthians chapter seven, and you have the sorrow of uh, godly sorrow. Well, godly sorrow produces what? Repentance unto life, and worldly sorrow produces what? It produces death. And just uh, make it right before God, and that's what the prodigal son did. And you, you know, we've mentioned him two or three times. Huh? This is just an interesting little tidbit. In Luke chapter 15, in Luke chapter 15, it says in verse 17, And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? He came to himself. Robert Jackson pointed this out to me. When did the prodigal son come to himself? Right? At his lowest? Yeah, because if you read the verse right before, it says in verse 16, and he would, uh, he would fain have filled his uh, belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. See, the problem, a lot of times people get, in wrong, get involved in wrongdoing. You see this with drugs a lot. You have what's called enablers. You know, they're, they're grandpa or grandma, you know, they're going to give him some money to help pay his rent. You're going to give him some money, you know, uh, uh, to help buy some food. And somebody else, you know, people, the employer, you know, they're going to cut him a little slack here, and somebody else cut him slack, and, and they just keep on, keep on, keeping on. And, and then ultimately, sometimes it gets to the point, well, finally, no man gives to you. And that's the opportunity. Well, 
person might just wake up then. Because when you have people always enabling, 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 well, they don't come clean. They don't come uh, to realization that they're in the mess. And why are people in the mess that they're in? Because of bad choices. You know, we, we have a tendency to just wipe our feet on, on everybody and anybody that comes along uh, to blame for why we did it. Well, you don't know what I have to live with. And you don't know how the church treated me. And you don't know how society did this. And you don't know where, you know, where I have to work. And you know, we're just always blaming somebody. Now, let's look at Psalm 51. I just want to look at this. And, and Seth touched, touched on it. But kind of, kind of want to look at this because it sort of ties together what we're talking about. In Psalm 51, there in number 17 and 18. 17 and 18. Come on, read that for us. Psalm 51, numbers uh, 16, sorry, 16 and 17. 16 and 17. All right? And that's what the prodigal son manifested, a broken and contrite heart. He acknowledged his wrongdoing. He came to himself. And until we come to the full realization that I did wrong, that I have transgressed the will of God, and I have done horrible things, and to accept the guilt and, and accept the responsibility of my choices and my actions, and come clean before the Lord, we're just going to keep wallowing in sin and, and doing all these uh, mind games and playing around, and maybe we, well, we'll throw a little extra money in the play, uh, collection plate, and maybe we'll say an a, a extra prayer here and there, and somehow that's going to take care of it. That, that, those kind of things don't take care of it. Until we come clean before the Lord, and just acknowledge our wrongdoing, and bring it to God, and say, Lord, I just made a terrible mess. And that's what the prodigal son did. He says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and no more worthy to be called your son. Total, uh, complete honesty, integrity, and just make it right before God. And he made it right. And that's what David did. That's where the tender heart comes in. Yeah, he, he sort of stubbed up and, and, you know, he played along for a long time and, and he acknowledged that it really wasn't you know, inside, he, he just, his conscience roared. But finally, he confesses when confronted. There's no longer any need to try to hide it anymore. It's all out in the open now. And the only thing to do is just make it right before God. I have sinned. And that's, that's, what, that's where we need to get spiritually to make our life rise. And, you know, I've, I've done wrong. I'm not living right. I'm not doing what I need to be doing. I'm, you know, playing this, you know, one foot in the church and one foot in the world or whatever the problem might be. It's finally just make it right before God to have that tender conscience that David exemplified in such a uh, horrendous story that's described. But it turned out well because he found the forgiveness that is found in God. All right. Thanks for everybody's uh, participation.